how do you develop your framework? <sighs> All right. I'm so glad you asked this. This is a really good question. This is going to get to like the heart of how my, my mental models and my brain works. So my favorite books of all time are Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and the sequel, which is called Lila, both by Robert Persig, both written in the 70s. Actually, Lila might have been later, but Zen in the Art, definitely the 70s. And something that Persig talks about in that book is the knife that cuts and makes meaning and sense of the world. And his knife is not an actual knife. It's a conceptual knife. And he says that the most important thing that we can do to make sense of the world is be really clear about how we are cutting things apart. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on today? Not so much. I just finished planting a sugar maple tree in the front yard and mulched it up. Got some flowers in there, so... I'm feeling good, man. I've had my hands in the dirt for the last hour, and now I'm transitioning to the digital world. Brad the Gardener, Landscaper. That is your new title. So, But, you know, it segues perfectly into what we're going to talk about today, because today is all about being grounded, groundedness. And I don't know a better way to establish that than getting your hands in the dirt and, you know, planting some trees. For real. This was not a pre-planned setup, but I guess um, I guess I was grounding myself before the podcast to talk about groundedness. All right. So for those listeners who haven't heard us or live in a vacuum, uh, Brad has a new book out, The Practice of Groundedness, something that has been in the work for a long time. Brad and I have discussed these topics forever. Um, and it's finally here. If you're listening to this, it is finally out. So what we're going to do is, since I have a little inside look and inside knowledge of how this came about, we're going to try and peel back the layers and go into you know what made this book, but more importantly, like, why it's important and how it can improve your life and and at whatever you're you're doing. Um, I actually, you know, before we jump into this, Brad, although we discuss these topics like for forever and so many hours of discussing it, I did not read the book or any drafts of it until you know a couple weeks leading into the, into this, and I did that intentionally because. I don't know, I, you know, having written books with you, once you start reading something, you lose out and that you don't have that first impression, you know, and I think it's very cool to know you for this long, know these topics, but still have that first impression and those aha moments to see how you brought it together. So, um, you know, my biased opinion, but a fantastic book that is as much needed in the world. 
Thank you. And um, yeah, I'm really glad that we went about it that way. I think it was partially by design, but partially also just happenstance. Um, I remember we got far enough along where I said, hey, Steve, I'm not necessarily looking for particular feedback, but do you want to read it? And you said, nah, I'll wait. Um, and it, you had a lot going on in your life in the time, and I didn't take it as anything other than, cool, I'll get to read it just like everyone else. So um, yeah, it's neat that you had that experience, and I'm glad that it was a good reading experience. Yes, tons of underlined stuff. So let's. I, I got to d- dive in with the most important question for me and for my you know, my little contribution of our audience. And it's a a somewhat serious question, even though it might come off not as that. How in the world does the practice of groundedness help you run faster? Steve, don't you co-host a podcast called The Science of Running? This is the other podcast that you're on. (laughs) Well, I'm going to zoom out and... And take that as a serious question, which is how can practicing groundedness make you a better athlete? And I think perhaps the biggest aha moment or paradox in the book is that we often believe that in order to do great things and to improve, we need to start from a place of not being enough or of so desperately wanting to achieve a goal. We think that intensity and motivation has to come from so deep. I need to get faster. I need to win this event. I need to become a better athlete. And what the research and reporting that I did for this book shows is that a little bit of that need is okay, but any more than a little bit is actually detrimental. And the best way to make progress as an athlete Really, the best way to make progress at anything is to start from a place of being grounded, which means having a solid foundation, being enough where you are, having a durable base, and then building upon it. And the reason for this is simple. If you start without that durable base, you are inherently fragile, and it creates a sense of anxiety or restlessness that if I don't accomplish my goal then there's no ground underneath me. I'm screwed. If you start from a place of having that solid base and having that solid foundation, it is if you're playing with the house's money. You can have fun. You can be more free. You can enjoy the process more. And you have a greater chance of actually improving because the chance of burnout goes way down. Even if you were to succeed both ways, There's two ways to reach the top of a mountain or two ways to run a sub 16 minute 5k or whatever it is. One way is constantly obsessing about whether or not you're going to do it. The other way is being fully present for where you are in route. The end result might be the exact same, but the experience of those two paths is extremely different. And since we're all going to die, you might as well try to cultivate the good experience. Love it. That's actually a a perfect answer. And I am, you know, I asked that question in jest, but it's a serious question because I do think that, you know, your book, whether you're an athlete or, you know, performing in some other domain, uh, establishes that foundation that allows you to perform. And what I hear in that answer and then what I also got out of the reading, which is 
one of the biggest things I see in, in coaching athletes is like this transitioning from like a fear based model or playing not to lose based model to having this freedom to explore your performance capabilities, all that, that kind of stuff. And you really get to the, the heart of this. So I, I want to talk a little bit about just that. And in the context of fear, which is something that we hear a lot about right now in various contexts with pandemic, COVID, all that good stuff. But how do we, you know, briefly, how do you see fear maybe differently than the 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 world out there? And then in addition, how do we get to a place where we're playing to win and not to lose? All right. Two-part question. The first is, how do I see fear differently now that I've done this work on this book? I think that I'm going to quote a psychotherapist named James Hollis, who's like a Jungian therapist and writer. And his work is not directly in the book, but I I read through a lot of his stuff and formulating uh, the ideas for the book. And he says that you ought to ask for any given challenge, does this diminish me or does this enlarge me? Not does this scare me or not, but does this diminish me or does this enlarge me? And if the answer is that it enlarges you, you should go forward and take your fears with you. If the answer is it diminishes you, then you ought not to do that thing. So... I am now trying to see fear very differently as a signal that something is important and then ask that question, does it diminish me or enlarge me? And how I answer that question makes it really clear generally what the path forward is. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is that it is scary and hard to really confront fears and it becomes very easy to try to delude yourself or think magically about things that are scary. And I think that there's so much of that happening right now as well. With the pandemic, instead of accepting that this is a terrible thing that's happening and there's only so much I can control and I'm going to do those things, we have people that are truly completely deluding themselves and denying that anything's happening at all. And we have other people that are trying to control every single element of their life to a point where it becomes more than futile. I would argue that the former is more dangerous than the latter because better to err on the side of caution. But eventually, I do think that as a society, we're going to have to figure out what, what does it mean to live with COVID in the air? And are we going to diminish ourselves because of fear? Or are we going to enlarge ourselves? And if the death rate of something is 1% to 2%, I would argue that not doing the thing that you might be thinking about doing is actually enlarging yourself because 1% to 2% death rate is pretty high. If we get to a point where the death rate of COVID is on par with like the flu or less, then I do think there's going to be a big unwinding of needing to get over this fear and saying that, hey, this is an acceptable risk for most people to take because otherwise we're diminishing ourselves by not truly living our life. 
That's, yeah, that's some good insight there. Uh, kind of piggybacking off of this, I'm curious, and I promise this won't be the pandemic you know, podcast, but you started this project before any of this occurred, right? And then you are finished up in the middle of it, in the midst of it. How did that change like your perspective on some of the topics you covered in this? And yeah, let's start with that. So I think that initially I was thinking of the topics in the book is very much about individuals. So an individual suffering from exhaustion, restlessness, burnout, whatever it might be. An individual that is compulsively striving that is then on a fragile ground. An individual that's struggling to be resilient. And all of my research, reporting, and writing was very much focused on that question. Like how can individuals become more grounded? I think what COVID highlighted for me is that many of these principles also apply to entire societies and, and, and cultures. So towards the end of the book, and readers, you'll realize that as the book gets into the section about community towards the end, and certainly in the conclusion, the tone kind of shifts from what individuals can do to how this impacts entire communities and cultures. And I think the pandemic got me thinking about this, not only in terms of my actions, your actions, the listeners' actions, but what does it look like for a culture or a community or a nation to be grounded? So, uh, yeah, one question on the follow-up there is you mentioned community in there, and I know you had this wonderful part in the book on essentially transitioning to working at home. And again, this was pre-pandemic because your work changed. You're now spending more time at home. And although you have access to, you know, friends through Twitter and Facebook and text and all that, and you're calling me, you know, five times a day, whatever it is, you know, you, you report that, you know, you go through this feeling of, of loneliness. And I think this, you know, reading this now, it's fascinating because I think that is something that as everybody transitioned and as our communities kind of got cut off and narrowed, we all experienced this feeling of loneliness that maybe we didn't have to wrestle with, even though technically, you know, we are more connected than than ever, you know, before. So I'm I'm wondering... Again, if you can maybe talk a little bit about how that transitioning at home impacted how you viewed community and then, you know, what steps in your life did you set up to make sure or to cover that or to like fill that hole um, as it became your new normal? Mm, good question, Steve. So to be clear, Steve is alluding to something that for me happened before COVID. And this is when I made the jump from any semblance of a quote unquote, you know, normal job to being a writer and building a coaching practice. And as a result, working alone, working from home. And I did feel pretty lonely. It kind of crept up on me. I think that the reason for this was less the fact that I was working at home per se because I still had people around me in my community that I could be with, and more the fact that starting a coaching practice, 
publishing these books, launching the growth equation, there were a lot of really neat, exciting things going on in, in my life. And all of these things were in alignment with my core values of creativity, of authenticity, of intellect. So I pushed really hard in them. And I wanted to be as efficient as possible at doing those things. And I think the reason that loneliness crept up on me is because what I realized is that I prioritized efficiency and productivity at those things to a point where I started to deprioritize community. So instead of driving 30 minutes to meet a bunch of friends to go on a hike, I would FaceTime with them. Instead of going into the actual local YMCA, I would train at home because it saved commute time and I could get my warm up down and just knock it out right there. Instead of meeting friends for lunch, I would eat lunch at my desk. Instead of a Zoom, I would call. Instead of a call, I would text. So all the way down the chain, you can see how efficiency, optimization, productivity, even if it's towards things that are meaningful and you really care about, it has this way of crowding out what in the book I call deep community, which is the irreplaceable connection that you get with someone when you are actually with them in the physical. Fast forward a little bit, COVID comes along, as you mentioned, in many ways we're forced to experience this because being with people in the physical at first became you know, a, a big risk factor of this. And even as we learned more about COVID, being with people in the physical was more complicated. You had to be distanced, you had to be outside, you had to get tested, whatever it might be. So my hope is that coming out of COVID, more people will realize the importance of deep community, which is both a sense of belonging to a lineage or work, which I had 100% in this period of my life. But what I didn't have was the actual slowing down to create moments to be with people that I care about in real life, in person. And that is what our species evolved for. We lived in tribes of 10 to 150 people. We told stories around the fire, all of these things that get crowded out by a focus on optimization, efficiency, and by social media. I also hope that Hillary, Steve's wonderful wife, is listening to this because this is my case for y'all to like move here. I've already identified the six houses. Um, so Hillary, get some deep community in your life. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll see if she listens. Knowing her, she probably will not listen to this. Uh, she's got got busier things to do teach elementary school kids um but on that note so one of the things that comes to mind when you know you're talking about the importance of community which i 100 percent agree with and all the research that you clearly outline does so too um one of the things that i'm kind of worried about looking off into the world though is we need to fill this this hole of community but what seems to be occurring is we're replacing real community with what I'll just call fake community. Where it feels like we're connected to others, but we're really not. And the, the difference I would might say is it's like having a community uh, in, you know, 30 years ago, your community might be your, you know, you know your neighbors and get to know them and, you know, have a block party, what, what, whatever. The 20, 
you know, 21 version is the neighborhood app where you don't know any of your neighbors, but it kind of feels like you do because like they're all in this crazy app message board with you. Yeah, that's a real thing. The research in the book on this topic in particular, I found fascinating. And it's something that you and I, um, I think had like had a hunch about a couple of years back, but couldn't necessarily express so clearly where online connection fits in. And what the studies that I profiled for the book show unequivocally is that if you use the internet is what researchers call a way station for community, then it is very positive. So this means you might meet people on Twitter or on your neighborhood message board or Reddit or Facebook or whatever it is, connect with them briefly and then take it offline. Take it to a phone call, take it to a video, ideally take it to in-person. Probably the best use of the internet is I have insert here, rare disease, addiction, trauma, family history. I want to find other people like me and then I can meet those people online, but then take the connections offline and really develop them. There, social media is extremely positive. If social media is the end point for community, meaning you go there and you stay there, then it is very much detrimental to mental health. So that's the first element of it. The second element of it is what the polymath of the mid-1900s, Eric Fromm, called the marketing personality. And at the time, he called it the marketing orientation. I've kind of changed it to the marketing personality. And today, you call it your personal brand, which is that the more you're on social media, the more that everything becomes work. And your revenue is likes and retweets and comments. It is very hard to authentically connect with someone on a deep level if you are selling yourself. So on the whole, social media isn't good or bad. It just is. If you use it as a place to meet people and then build those relationships in other deeper, more meaningful venues, it can be very positive. If you use it as an end place or a place to try to amass whatever it is that you're looking for, for your personal brand, then it is detrimental. And of course this makes sense because when shit hits the fan in your life, What's going to be your foundation? Is it going to be the people that follow you or that comment on your post on Instagram? No, it's going to be your neighbors, the people that you train with at the gym, um, family members, colleagues that you got to know outside of work. So we can lie to ourselves intellectually, but our subconscious, our emotional lives, we know that if your whole connection is on the internet, like you are on very shaky ground when shit hits the fan. If you've got deep community off the internet, it is much easier. Love it. I want to circle back to something that you said in the previous answer, which is like our our kind of love for efficiency and over-optimization. And I couldn't help but think of the research related to um, companies taking taking away essentially water cooler time, right? Where you're just, you know... You're shooting the shit with your friends, you know, your coworkers at the water cooler. And what inevitably happens is modern world, we've cut down on that stuff, taken away, make it more difficult because that's, you know, spending time during company time, not doing your work. 
So if any, you know, executives are out there listening, if anybody's in charge of some company, maybe, you know, what advice would you give to them to like keep some of that, you know, natural connection uh, in their in their workplace or, you know, or their life? It's a difference between a short term and a long term mindset. So it's okay to be inefficient today because it will make you more efficient tomorrow. And this very much ties into the principle of um, being patient gets you there faster. Because in a way, this is about being patient. And if you want the best results tomorrow, yeah, take away the water cooler time. Go crush yourself in today's workout. You know, pull the all-nighter. But if you want the best results in a week, in a month, in a year, in a decade, then you have to build in time for community. In this case, it's about innovation. I also think about this, and I'm gonna, I hope it's okay, I'm going to give you more than you asked for, Steve, in relation to people switching to working remotely. So for better or worse, and depending on the context, it could be both of those things, the office setting was a source of in-person community for so many people. And as we shift to working remotely, People are pretty stoked about getting their commute time back, about not having to you know, put on a suit, all these things that take time, pack a lunch, you name it. Will that 45 minutes to an hour saved in the morning and the night for some people living in big cities could be like two and a half hours of commute time, right? If you're taking trains and, and taxis or Ubers, whatever it is, will that just be replaced by more work? So instead of commuting, will you just be on your BlackBerry? I guess, man, I'm living in the past. On your iPhone or on your, um, I, you know, and what made me think of that is my McKinsey days when I was always on my BlackBerry. But will you just be on your device doing more work in that time? Or will you use that time to invest in building deep community locally? Going to your gym, getting more involved in your neighborhood, meeting friends to go on walks, having book clubs, um, if you struggle with addiction, going to the AA group, whatever it might be. And my fear is that everyone's just going to optimize more and work more. And then working remote will actually be terrible because what little deep community we had in the workplace is gone and you're just replacing it with nothing. If people take that time to get beyond like happy hour community and really getting to know one's neighbors and developing a sense of ownership in place for where they live, then I think working remotely will be a huge positive. So what you said right there, almost it like the optimist in me says like, oh, great, we have all that. We're going to have this time and people will figure it out. The pessimist in me says, oh, man, listening to that makes me fear that like we're on the precipice of like another mental health breakdown or collapse because we know that like belonging and community and all of that are like, as you clearly show in the book, like deeply founded like needs that we have. And if we don't have them, we're going to feel lonely, which then is essentially the body and mind's way of saying, hey, you feel lonely, go fill this need. And my fear, you know, as I play this out in my head right now is my fear is, OK, we're going to maybe, you know, you take away work. 
you take away this sense of community that might not have been perfect, but it's at least something for, you know, many people. Um, what are we going to fill it with? Right. If like, and what I mean by that is like our tendency is to fill like that sense of community, not with the deep connections, but it's often to, to reach for the junk food candy version, right? Because it's easier to consume and it makes you feel good initially because you get this calories. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure there's a question in there, but it's kind of an interesting and, you know, maybe not that happy or kind of gloomy scenario that could play out that we need to kind of be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that circles back to something that you asked me a little while ago, which is how did my thinking change as a result of having COVID happen in the process of writing this book? And I, I think I did say like right around the community chapter. And at this point, I definitely started thinking less just about individuals and more about like society as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like we need to think of uh, you know, this is a bigger problem that you and I can't solve. But as a societal is like, wh- how do we create these things where for the past hundred ish years, maybe a little bit, a little bit more, we've had like this inbuilt system that at least creates a sense of meaning or community for everybody else. And now we're, or now we're taking that away. Well, at the same time, seeing religion, et cetera, kind of dwindle or go down as well, which is another key sense of community for people. So yeah, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. The part about religion in the book I thought was really fun too, for me as a, as a writer and researcher to realize that all these people. So first off, there is very high correlation between going to religious services and um, better health and mortality. And all these people think it's because their chosen deity is saving them. But it's the same in all religions, different varieties of Christianity, Buddhism, Stoicism, Taoism, uh, Judaism, Jehovah's Witness, Quakers, you name it. So it clearly there's something going on, but it's not their particular God because they're often praying to like different gods or different saints. So what's saving them is actually the regularity of meeting with other people in holding space together and sharing their lives in, in a similar belief system. Uh, so that was pretty neat. And it's the same reason why AA groups are so effective. It's not because of like the, the you know, anything special. It's because you're getting people in a vulnerable space together in a room in person. Yeah, exactly. Um, it reminds me of this book by, I'll butcher his name, but Elaine de Baton um, that basically looked at Hey, here's some great things that religions as whole bring. How do we how do we create that in society? And and in that book, like he covered one of the thing the same thing that you just mentioned there and that you mentioned in your book, which is like religions regardless of which one they are do a fantastic job and like clearly show a boost of mental and physical health in this regard. How do we how do we mimic that in society? And I think that's a great question that is still kind of we're we're kind of trying to figure that one out. Yeah. And how do we take the good about religion? Because like the great paradox there is the worst of religion is turning people against each other and tribalism. So um, it's really a catch 22 there. 
Right. And it, it reminds me of other stuff that I've been working on recently and researching, which is like you want that community, but you don't want it, for lack of a better term, to turn into a cult, right? Which has many of the same quote unquote benefits in terms of feeling oneness and connection and all that stuff, but it takes it too far, you know? So, all right. One other thing that I want to talk to you before kind of getting into the nuts and bolts on how this book came about, which is in one of the chapters, you mentioned what Seneca called busy idleness. And I think this is like a modern scourge of or scourge of modernity in terms of, you know, our social media, all that screens, et cetera. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of, you know, elaborate on that term busy idleness and and kind of, you know, walk us through that a little bit. So Seneca observed this, you know, thousands of years ago. So this is not new. I think it's probably just part of the human condition. But to him, busy idleness was all these people running about doing all these self-important things, but not really doing anything at all. And... Today, I would say that busy idleness is the feeling of being completely all over the place, no time for anything, frenetic energy coming at you from all different directions, but at the end of the day, feeling like you didn't really accomplish anything. And as a result, I see this in my coaching practice a lot. I write about this in the book. People come home from this busy day feeling totally physically drained, but emotionally like empty because they didn't actually do anything. So then like they're short with their romantic partner or if they have kids, they're short with their kids or they feel shame and guilt and they go to sleep or they stay up even later trying to do work because they didn't do anything during the day. So I think that the driver of this problem is the world that we live in today is one of just nonstop constant stimulation. And when you live in a world of constant stimulation, you are going to be a little bit all over the place. I think what the practice of groundedness says that you ought to do is to really make a practice out of presence, knowing it's not going to be automatic. So it's about getting upstream of all this constant stimulation and figuring out how can I make sure that I am setting some real clear boundaries and protection mechanisms around the things that are important to me so I can do them and be busy in a meaningful way. There's the busyness of having seven meetings, six of which are pointless, responding to 100 emails in between those meetings, and checking social media four times, God forbid, going to CNN.com two times. Or there is the busyness of two by two hour or two by one hour blocks of deep focus work, or a conversation with no cell phone no, you know, mind racing to the next thing being fully there. And I think the only way to make progress on this is a bottom-up approach. I don't think you can say I'm going to be present for everything always. I think you have to start really small and say, I'm going to identify some times during the day that I'm going to be fully present for these things that are important to me. And those times feel so good that there's such a natural feedback mechanism that you just want more of it. Um, particularly with my entrepreneur coaching clients, one of the best things I can do to help them, because it's a very common complaint that like, I'm super busy starting up this company, but I feel like I didn't really do anything today, is just to have them commit 
to scheduling a few blocks of undistracted time where they get to turn off their email, turn off their phone, work on something that they choose, often a long-term project that is important to them. And what's fascinating is they come back and they're like, I'm falling asleep easier. I'm not snapping on my husband as much. Um, I'm being more present for my kids. And I've been working the same amount of hours. I feel just as busy, but something's changed. And I think what's changed is they've gone from idle busyness to like meaningful busyness. That's yeah. Thanks a lot. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to jump from there into some of the, uh, I don't know, more nuance here or behind the scenes stuff here, which is, you know, we mentioned Seneca throughout the book. You mentioned a ton of science studies. You mentioned sport examples, business, entrepreneurs, executives. You talk about ancient wisdom from Buddhism to, you know, stoicism to, Christianity, Judaism, all of this. I'm wondering for our listeners, can you describe how you consume information? I can. So I read a ton of books. So that's my starting point. I tend not to read that much online. And that is because my brain is just so much better when reading something that is physical. So even if I read a great long form article on a topic, I won't absorb as much as if I read a book about that topic. Not just because the book is longer, but because the book is actually physical. I'm sure if I printed out articles and somehow organized them, it might change that. Uh, everything I read, I read with a highlighter and notes, note cards. And I'm constantly highlighting what I read and making little notes to myself about why I highlighted that. Then I organize all my books by topic. So on my bookshelf, there's like a Buddhist topic, a stoicism topic, a cognitive psychology topic, a social psychology um, area, philosophy of existentialism, a philosophy of willpower, a deep science, and athletics, right? So it's as if my brain is physically on my bookshelves. Whenever I have a big project, I go to those shelves and I start looking back at those little notes that I made, opening up those pages, seeing what I've highlighted. And to me, that's like the creative fuel or juice that then pushes the project forward. Uh, I think it's something that you and I have talked about quite a bit together is, you know, our whole mission here at the Growth EQ in our newsletter, this podcast, and all of our books is to get to what we love to call truth with a capital T, which is how at least how I define it. I hope you define it the same way. <laughs> um, principles and practices that hold up for many people in many different contexts most of the time. And looking at just science is really helpful, but it doesn't always get you there. Looking at just practice, really helpful, but doesn't get you there. Looking at just history and wisdom, helpful, but doesn't get you there. So I have really tried to make it a practice for myself to read in those three areas extensively and find patterns and themes. So I probably now read equal proportion books that are written by PhDs, science books, even like textbooks sometimes. I just finished a big textbook on allostasis. It was extremely boring, but also like extremely invigorating. Memoir, biography, autobiography, that's where you get the individual practice. 
And then lots of books from ancient wisdom traditions to try to figure out, well, what have people been talking about for the past couple millennia that have survived to this date? And you just see common themes. And once there's common themes, I start paying attention. Yeah, it's really that commonality. But, you know, speaking to groundedness a little bit is like you need that foundation so that you can see those connections. So, you know, I love your system there. I think everybody has a slightly different system, but I love how you almost enable yourself to get these connections among these very disparate domains. And I think it's important too to mention that we're so fortunate because reading is a big part of our job. We literally get like paid to read, you could argue. Even if you don't, if you take learning seriously or growth seriously, I would make reading more than just something that you do like to fill time. So the analogy I'll use for our listeners is if you're training for a running race or if you're strength training and you approach it as just something to fill time, it's going to be just that. You're going to fill time, but you're not really going to get better. You probably won't have that much of an intimate experience with the process of training. If you train in a structured way at similar times each day and you bring some intentionality to it, you're going to get better. And you'll probably over the course of you know a year or a decade, enjoy it a lot more. That's why we call it a physical practice, right? It's something that you're constantly doing, you're paying close attention to. I would urge listeners to treat reading the same way. So is there the kind of reading that you can use to fill time? Yes. That might be, you know, scrolling on your phone or your iPad while you're in public transit, the local newspaper. But I would also encourage people that want to take this seriously to build in a couple half an hour to hour windows a week where you are reading a book on a topic with your pen out in a way that you are not distracted and you're really treating it like is this sacred time to learn. Um, So I think that that's really important. Like I am never reading without a highlighter, a coffee. So generally like I read very intentionally, not when I'm tired, not at night because I want to remember stuff like Netflix is for falling asleep. Reading is for 2 PM with the coffee. Um, And not everyone has the flexibility because not everyone gets paid to write books and, and read, but I would just try to take these, broad themes, and then think about areas of your own life where you want to learn and be really intentional about how you do it. Yeah, the only thing I'd add there is, you know, when I was coaching and had a more busy life, um, I would have books that I was reading for fun, kind of, and books that I was reading for, like, depth and understanding. And I did a lot more of my reading at night and it would just like what book I, I reached for on my side table would depend on where my like mind and energy level was. Um, and that way, like and a lot of times I read stuff that I wanted to remember and highlight and all that stuff at night. But then there's other nights where I was just like, no, nope, not going to happen. Right. So it's it's kind of giving yourself that flexibility. The other thing that I think is really important to is giving yourself the permission to give up on a book. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who reads very slowly, you know, I give up on more books than I think, you know, uh, a lot of people would, but I wouldn't get to the meat or the good stuff in other books if I didn't do that. So I give every book a chance, but if, you know, I'm a hundred and something pages in and I got the gist of it and it's just not clicking and it's just, you know, a struggle, then 
put it aside, you know, go to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I struggle to put down books. Uh, I probably could do a better job of that, but I think that's really wise counsel. All right. So one last question, Brad. We've talked about how the book can help you, how the practice of groundedness can, you know, make you or allow you to live kind of a life where you're playing to win and fear isn't the thing and have deeper connections and community. We've talked about how you research all of that stuff. I am interested, and I've seen this from behind the scenes, but I think listeners will enjoy this. How is your framework to take all of that information and then put it into a very clear and cohesive framework in a book that is usable, applicable, will also contains this depth that, you know, maybe a normal self-help book wouldn't. So how do you go about that process? So you're asking me, how do I write a book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give you the Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich answer with a laptop in a word processing tool. So let me, let me simplify. Um, How about we focus on this, this one part? How do you develop your framework? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I was just giving you a hard time. I knew that, that that's what you're alluding at. <sighs> All right. I'm so glad you asked this. This is a really good question. This is going to get to like the heart of how my, my mental models and my brain works. So my favorite books of all time are Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and the sequel, which is called Lila, both by Robert Persig both written in the 70s. Actually, Lila might have been later, but Zen in the Art, definitely the 70s. And something that Persig talks about in that book is the knife that cuts and makes meaning and sense of the world. And his knife is not an actual knife. It's a conceptual knife. And he says that the most important thing that we can do to make sense of the world is be really clear about how we are cutting things apart. So if you think like prehistoric times, no brains, no concepts, everything just is, right? Like it is our intellectual cuts that make meaning and give form and shape and structure to the world. So I take this very seriously. What are the cuts I'm going to make? I could have written about everything in groundedness in a completely different way completely different principles, different practices, different overarching metaphor. And there are probably 20 permutations of the book that could have been like that. So I focus on what cuts make the most sense. So the first question is, what is the overarching metaphor that's going to make this concept real? And for me, in this book, it became groundedness when I was thinking about mountains and trees. I wanted something that people could really relate to and intuitively understand. So a mountain, when we look at a mountain, we see its peak. If it's really steep, we see its prominence, its rise on the way up. We never see the foundation of the mountain. But what keeps a mountain solid throughout all kinds of weather and over time is its foundation. So we're the same way. When we look at ourselves, when we look at other people, we see their peaks, their accomplishments, their bright and shiny objects. Sometimes we see the grind, how they're working on those things. What we don't see is the foundation that holds them, holds them up, keeps them strong. Same thing with a tree. 
When I first had the idea for the book, I was in Northern California amongst beautiful redwoods and redwood trees. They have this beautiful overstory and these big, thick trunks. But what you don't realize is that what's actually holding those trees to the ground are the roots. And without those roots, there is no tree. When there's a storm, it's the root system that is what keeps the tree powerful and strong. So I start looking around at people that are really struggling with exhaustion, with burnout, with all these things. It's like, well, no wonder we're only focused on the peak and the rise. We're not paying any attention to the roots or the base. So for a long time, I debated with you, with my editor, with my agent, should this be rooted or grounded? But they're both saying the same thing. I made the cut towards grounded. And you're going to laugh because I've gotten really into gardening since, but mainly because my agent was worried that if we called it rooted, people would think it was a gardening book which is maybe more appropriate now. Maybe that'll be the next one. So that was like the first big thing is what is the metaphor that is going to be intuitive for people? Then the second big thing, what's the list of principles that is going to make sense to underlie groundedness? In there, it's just constant rearranging of these notes that I have, grouping them together, trying out different groups, merging groups, splitting groups apart until I get comfortable enough that what I have is both mutually exclusive, so every principle can stand on its own, but collectively exhaustive, so I cover everything. And for this book, I really landed with five principles, which are accept where you are to get where you want to go, be present to own your energy and attention, be patient to get there faster, embrace vulnerability to build genuine strength and confidence, and build deep community. And I couldn't help because it wouldn't be intellectually honest for me in my own lived experience not to sneak in the sixth principle, which is move your body to ground your mind. And that is because when we just talk about acute in the moment, restlessness, anxiety, depression, um, even loneliness and social isolation, there's so much evidence that shows that moving your physical body, especially in today's sedentary world, helps. So if I'm going to write a book about being grounded, even if that doesn't fit the nice narrative of these philosophical, psychological concepts, it needs to be in there. So that became the sixth principle. Then how do I do it in a way that is both effective, which means it's going to help people, but also elegant, which is what I strive for as a writer, which is fun to read, you know, not a, not a word too many, not a word too few. And there, for me, the answer is really simple. The effectiveness is about going to the science, the wisdom, and the practice, our three-legged stool, pulling out things that work. For this book, leaning really heavily, not just on research psychology, but also on clinical psychology. So what has empirically been proven to change behavior out in the real world? Those are key to any kind of practice that the book includes. Around those practices is my chance as a writer to try to be elegant. And that's where I get to tell stories, pull quotes together from these ancient wisdom traditions, interleave my own experience. And I think that a good book, for me at this stage of my career, has to have enough of both. Because I really want the reader to enjoy reading the book, and I want to speak to them and have them want to pick it up. And I want them to be able to take out concrete things. So that then becomes the structure of each chapter. And then how do you tie the whole thing together? That gets back to this overarching theme. So whether you think of each principle as a root of a tree, or each principle is a part of the foundation of a mountain, the bottom line is if you water the roots of the tree, or if you tend to the foundation of the mountain, 
it's going to hold everything else up. So there you go. I guess it's a very long-winded answer into how my brain worked for this particular book, but I think the short answer is be really thoughtful about the cuts that you make because those initial cuts are going to color everything. Once I decided that this was the base of a mountain or the root system of a tree, it was all about the foundation. It was all about the stuff that supports the rise. It was all about how do you make sure that the base stays compact or that you water those roots. So everything flows down from that initial cut. So um, yeah. And I guess the other thing I'd be remiss not to say is I look to nature a lot because like nature's true. (laughs) Nature is. Nature's been forever. We're a part of nature. We often think that we are separate from nature. We are just as much a part of nature as that tree, that mountain, our pet dogs, or the elephant on the Sahara. Um, So oftentimes for me to make that initial cut, I do look to nature for the right metaphor because it's not really even a metaphor. We are nature. There's the secret sauce, folks. No, that, that was brilliant, Brad. I mean, I mean that. I know we've had endless discussions on frameworks and how to get things, you know, from idea into the pages, but that succinct, like very clear model you have and you just illustrated. I mean, honestly, I'm sitting here taking notes for myself because, you know, for my next book projects, I'm going to just copy and steal what Brad does. (laughs) But anyways, I just want to thank you for spending this time. This was actually a lot of fun for me, you know, sitting on the other side, you know, knowing what the book is about, having spent hours upon hours of these conversations and remembering going back and forth on rooted versus grounded and all this stuff just to see the finished product product is is amazing and so fun. And for listeners, if you haven't already, please, please, please go out, get your copy. I promise you will not be disappointed. It will help you in your work life. And it will even, I'm just going to guarantee that it will help you run a faster 5K. So Coach Steve knows. Uh, <laughs> no, this is a blast, man. I appreciate you um, you playing the role of, of interviewer here. And, um, yeah, I hope that y'all listening found this valuable. This is a little bit more formal than normal. So we will be back to our usual informal banter, um, within no time. But, uh, yeah, if you guys like what we do at the growth equation, if you like the podcast, um, buy the book, because I really think that you'll like it, you'll find it valuable. Steve mentioned, like I've poured my heart and soul to this. Steve has supported that effort. Um, And it really helps support us and what we're trying to do here. And we promise that we will not be selling you another book for at least six months until Steve's book comes out. So, you know, if if, if all goes well, this will happen once a year or so. Uh, So please, please, please pick up the book. I really do encourage people to read it with um, like a a highlighter or an underliner, some kind of uh, some kind of way to take notes. That said, if you really do prefer to consume things on audio, you're listening to this podcast, you can also get the audio book and all that jazz. So appreciate you guys. Uh, Thank you, Steve. And um, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. 
Follow us on Twitter at B Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.